Hello and welcome to Fly Over the Groove, the Michelle Brangwen Dance Ensembles podcast. I'm Michelle Brangwen. Thank you for listening. In this episode, I will be talking to one of my all-time favorite writers, Ashley Kahn, about the music of the virtuosic pianist and composer Alice Coltrane. Ashley Kahn is the author of some of the most profoundly insightful books about jazz music and jazz artists including The Making of a Love Supreme, The Making of a Kind of Blue, and The House That Train Built. He has also won Grammy Awards for his liner notes. I have to say that The Making of a Love Supreme is one of my all-time favorite books about music. Um, I'm so pleased to be speaking with him today. Before we begin, for those of you who might not be familiar with the Michelle Brangwen Dance Ensemble, a brief word about our work. We are a multidisciplinary performing ensemble of contemporary dance to live original music. In 18 years, every performance has included live music and the musicians as integral parts of the visual stage imagery. We believe that the artist's role in society is to communicate, to challenge, to open a dialogue that can both unite us and inspire meaningful change. We function like a jazz band and along with sections of choreographed movements and written music, we use improvisation that comes out of the form, concept, and emotional life of the work. For our 2018-19 season of performances, we are performing a new work called Closeness that is set to the music of Charlie Hayden and Alice Coltrane as arranged by Grammy-nominated trumpeter and composer Tim Higgins. I want to get right to our special guest, Ashley Kahn, and our wonderful subject today, the music of Alice Coltrane. At the end of this podcast, I will provide a little more information about our performance work entitled Closeness and an upcoming performance of the work at the Jazz Loft in Stony Brook, New York, on November 9th. And as a reminder, you can always find information about our performances and our projects at brangwindance.org. Ashley Kahn, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you, Michelle. I was first uh, exposed to the music of Alice Coltrane uh, on a concert by her son, Ravi, that he performed. It was at the Cullen Performance Hall in Houston, Texas, about 10 years ago. And at the end of the concert with his quartet, and it was an amazing performance, um, for an encore, he performed Jagadiswar, um, which is an Alice Coltrane composition from her, from her last CD, Translinear Light. Um, and Robbie explained that his mother was learning Hindu and various texts and chants uh, and accompanying herself on the piano. And I remember quite well that I felt the atmosphere shift in the concert hall. I, I felt this deep emotional current welling up inside of me. Um, and, and the feeling of, of this music at that moment in the concert hall, it, it's still ingrained in my mind. Um, so for me personally, in my first exposure to the music of Alice Coltrane, um, I felt this or saw this incredible connection and in, in building on her husband's work. And I want to focus on Alice Coltrane as a musician and a composer in her own right. But I want to mention in this opening question, 
and she was the wife of John Coltrane, who really embodied this idea of a heightened sense of spirituality and the divine in his music. Um, so we first hear Alice Coltrane as a sideman with other musicians and with her other with her husband's quartet. Um, so can you talk about her music making in her role as a sideman with her husband and how that evolved and changed uh, in her work as a composer and leader in her own right? And maybe talk about these different threads um, through her work with her husband and, and her own work. Well, I'm happy to do that. Um, you know, the story that you just shared is kind of indicative of the power of Alice Coltrane's music. I mean, the fact that you were receiving it in a very indirect way through her son. I mean, which is probably as direct as it can be these days now that, that you know, Mrs. Coltrane has, has moved on. Um, the idea, you know, that, that the music remains powerful uh, if it's being interpreted by uh, someone who understands the music, uh, speaks very loudly, you know, in this kind of instance. Um, the description of that you gave of Mrs. Coltrane being a sideman um, pretty much is how the world came to know her in the first place. Um, you know, but What's most, I think, revealing about Alice Coltrane, her music, her sound, and her approach, was in fact how different it was after John Coltrane passed away. I mean, when you think about it, she was John Coltrane's wife only for a few years. I mean, he was. They they met in 1962. By 1967, he was gone, leaving her with the house, the Coltrane name, three sons and, and her daughter by her first marriage, and she was all of 30 years old. Um, I don't know anyone who would have had the strength and the fortitude and the vision to continue along not only a career path and a musical path, but a spiritual path, growing and changing and evolving to the point that uh, by the end of the 1970s, she was not only mother of four, not only a successful solo artist, but she was running an ashram that was uh, becoming uh, more and more populated with um, similarly-minded spiritual seekers of the day. And in fact, she prioritized that at that point and drops out of the idea of uh, active career building, active touring, and being a member of the jazz community in order to um, take on the mantle of Swamini and pursue that. So I give that all as a sort of background context to to try and understand the the inner strength that this amazing woman had and that it probably was the result of a fire that was definitely lit by John Coltrane and his own spiritual explorations and his own very universalistic holistic view of music, spirituality, and living one's life 
as being all sorts of uh, all part of the same uh, expressive whole. You know, this idea that um, whether you're playing in a jazz club on Saturday night or going to church on Sunday morning, it's all related. It's all part of the same kind of connection to um, people around you and connection to the divine. Um, nowadays, we kind of know the, the term namaste, you know, the idea of the connection between the divine in me and the divine in you. And John Coltrane, in his own individual way, was kind of creating this, a love supreme, his magnum opus, his recording from late 1964, is kind of a statement in this direction that he had come out of the black church but that in his own spiritual pursuits had created a kind of individual personal philosophy that really connects with this Eastern ideal of connection. Um, And uh, Mrs. Coltrane, of course, picked up on this, but where she went musically and where she went spiritually was her own path. It was not the same as John Coltrane. Um, she may have been a sideman in his group in the last two and a half years of John Coltrane's life, but her music that she starts recording in 1968, almost a full year after John Coltrane passes, becomes very different. It's what we might call a kind of world music fusion, uh, mixing together modal jazz as well as the flavors of um, Indian music of uh, she had zitar and various other Indian instruments on her first few albums but then she later you know um, starts absorbing the uh, um, the music of the Vedantic tradition um, uh, Hindi uh, uh, praise songs to Hindi deities and singing in Sanskrit and developing her own path, which was very specific to that Vedantic uh, tradition, whereas John Coltrane was very much a self-made kind of uh, spiritual path, a self-hewn spiritual path that he pursued. Well, and I think you asked, which brings me to my next question about this this new release. But I think, as you mentioned in in your liner notes, that um, it was it was not only the Vedantic; it was also this kind of fusion of that with her with her own spiritual roots um, uh, in the church, and then also, um, you know, there there's this kind of a fusion of pop classical music you know there's a version of the rite of spring which is amazing um uh i think it's called uh spring about about spring spring bouts from the um uh from the eternal spirit uh so uh, if you could so we just had this wonderful release of all of her recordings that she did for warner warner brothers and i mean i i've been listening to this over and over again and i just I, I'm just uh, overwhelmed by it. It's so amazing and it's so uh, rich and varied. It's 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 completely unpredictable. You can't I, like you can't just say oh th- if you want to someone said describe uh, describe this to me. What kind of music is it? Basically, you you couldn't because it is so um, it is so varied and it is so rich. So maybe you could talk a little bit, bit about how this project came about and and the significance of these um 
uh, of these three recordings that are part of this uh, compilation? I'd be happy to. Um, you know, the most, uh, uh, well, let's put it this way. There was a limited amount of time and a limited amount of recordings that uh, Mrs. Coltrane uh, um, delivered in her time with us. Um, and if you were to describe the kind of path that it pursued, um, it was one very experimental. Uh, in her music, you can hear how open she was to new instrumentation, even instruments that she had never played on before professionally. She was a trained classical and gospel pianist from Detroit who fell in love with bebop, who fell in love with it so much that it, it took her to Paris, where she studied with Bud Powell. Uh, in order to get to Paris, she you know, uh, married a man that she fell in love with, a singer named Kenny Haygood. And um, the result of that union is, of course, Michelle Coltrane. Um, the uh, continuing explorations and ideas that came out of her relationship with John Coltrane included picking up the harp. And then that becomes part of the sound on her very first solo recording, her first recording as a leader in 1968. And then the path continues, and she develops uh, an affection for the Wurlitzer organ with its kind of uh, note-shifting qualities. There was a little uh, add-on uh, uh, part to it that that really became kind of part of her sound too um, that kind of whine that it had later on she would uh, by the early 80s when she's recording music only for her ashram with her ashram followers as her audience and then in the early 80s when she's making music for the uh, members of her ashram she develops an affection for the Oberheim uh, synthesizers of the early 80s. And so she has this ever-open, ever-shifting, ever-experimental uh, edge to her music. Um, but it becomes more and more spiritually focused as, as the years go by. It's always spiritual, but it becomes more and more focused on the specific path that she's on, which is very much um, uh, guided by a Vedantic traditional approach to the um, uh, the the songs, the praise songs of of the Vedantic tradition, praising Hindi deities, um, and uh, you know the music that you hear on these last three albums that she did as far as having a major label contract in the 1970s, you hear that path taking place too. The very first album that she did for Warner Brothers was kind of more typical of what she had been doing jazz-wise and fusing uh, modal jazz with other sounds, especially rock, classical, R&B. There's one tune on there that that sounds like it, it was very much informed by kind of Ray Charles gospel feel. Um, and then by albums number two and three for Warner Brothers, she's pretty much focusing on the idea of what is the music that's coming out of my ashram? What, who are the lead singers 
who I would actually think about putting on a recording who are part of this ashram, and they appear on her uh, albums. And uh, the idea that, you know, in the late 70s, one would walk into a record store, and if that one was looking for an Alice Coltrane album and her latest stuff, what you would be hearing is just one step away from what would be played on Sundays and Wednesdays and Mondays at the ashram that she was leading in Woodland Hills, actually Agora Hills, California. Oh, oh excellent. Excellent. I mean, but even even in that, I don't know, I hear a kind of a, like there is a very personal stamp, like in uh, Om Supreme, uh, you know, this, which, which has this uh, chant at the end, which, which is just so arresting to hear but in the beginning um the chant is you know is is in english and is about going to california and it's like a it's almost like a a mantra but but almost a very western uh mantra i think the words is you know i will meet you in california um is so beautiful so there's i don't know you i always get the sense of this incredible um and i remember the first time i heard transcendence you know just the contrast between the track transcendence which is kind of a string quartet and then the uh gananila you know with the clapping and the chanting and the you know um so i i i've always been struck by this incredible um you know this incredible richness and i mean it may i also think sometimes that had she been uh, just how the the music world viewed women composers and band leaders, you know, over the years as opposed to men. Had she been a man, uh, you know, that m maybe more of this music would have been uh, put out there and also just programmed. Like, I would love to go to a concert in a concert hall of, of music from these Warner Brothers recordings. I mean, I, I think it would be absolutely, you know, amazing. Yeah. Well, the um, point you're making, you know, and there's a couple of points that you just made all, all at once. So I'm going to step into this, you know, and say that, you know, the, the, the thing about the 1970s, let, let's at least understand the context, that there was this incredible shift that had happened in the late 60s, of course, culturally. And like w 10 years later, the, 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 the um, result of that was a very flexible, fluid, open kind of um, variety of music that was happening all at the same time. Uh, at the time that this music was coming out, you got to remember that, um, you know, punk rock was happening. Disco was at its height. Reggae music was flooding in and, and influencing everybody. Um, and this is in addition to rock and the, the, the singer-songwriter stuff that had come out of the folk tradition and the harder rock that had come out of the blues rock tradition with electric guitars, etc., etc. So the, it was a very special moment still, still. Even though, you know, the the record companies were kind of clamping in and wanting to make their, you know, their their bigger and bigger pieces of the pie, etc. But that kind of commercial um, drive had uh, not been channeled into, you know, very rigid marketing decisions. So this kind of open feel that uh, 
would allow someone like Alice Goldtrain, who is, yes, a woman, yes, very spiritually oriented, and putting out albums with titles that had that were came from Sanskrit, you know, uh, uh, terminology, made perfect sense in that moment in time. It's hard to describe that. It's hard to even begin to 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 tell a younger audience what that felt like. But it made sense. Uh, the one thing I remember myself as someone who kind of came up during that period was that I found that the rawness that had been there, uh, when I say raw, I mean just, you know, a, a closer mic'd kind of sound to all the instruments that had come out of the earlier Alice Coltrane recordings was now being a little more polished. And the funny thing is that in listening to it now, I don't hear that at all. But I remember thinking that to myself, that, oh, she's getting quote-unquote produced. Well, she actually got produced very well. Mm. And yeah. and listening to it now, I really see the value in what was happening. And also the challenge of bringing the music out of her ashram, the chanting, the clapping, the, 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 the mixture with the live instruments, while all of this is going on, and the fact, by the way, that a lot of the singers that she was dealing with were not professional singers. She had some uh, talent at the ashram with some of the lead singers, but not all of them. And so even in the positioning of the choir versus the lead singers, there was a thought put into this. And to appreciate that now with a much better understanding of what goes into music production, um, I think it's it's a great lesson to see at, that she really took this seriously. She wanted to get the music out there. She wanted people to hear it. And she was able to do it in the context of that moment in time culturally. Mm, amazing. Um, uh, jumping forward to, to Translinear Light. Um, uh, which is actually the first CD that I, that I, uh, that I heard of hers, um, uh, which was after she, um, which she returned to public performance and, 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 a, and a recording released to the public. Um, two questions about that CD that I've, I've, I've wanted to ask you, uh, for a long time. Um, there are two bonus tracks and one of them is a duet with Charlie Hayden. Um, and it is just magnificent. And of course, there's Forteria, which is their duet from Charlie Hayden's CD, Closeness. And, you know, the chemistry between the two of them, I, I find just, it, it's amazing. And I, I wondered if you could speak about that, um, about that relationship between the, the two of them. Well, I think that, you know, the idea that Charlie Hayden came out of you know, a very rich, very flexible, very understanding background that began with Ornette Coleman is is a way to understand the, the connection that uh, he would later have with Alice Coltrane. Um, of course, there's this mutual respect and admiration going on. You can hear that. You can feel it in the, in the, um, uh, the way that they play together. 
they really are not only playing but listening very deeply to each other and reacting to each other. Um, and Charlie was, you know, someone who could be that way. But it was a different Charlie Hayden who played with Keith Jarrett, for example, in the 1970s than who played with Ornette Coleman in the 60s and played with, you know, um, uh, Alice Coltrane both in the 70s and, you know, many years later when they reunited for Translinear Light. Um, the, uh, uh, the depth of the kind of singing style that they both have in their performances. Um, when I say singing style, very lyrical, knowing how to hang on to a note, where to do it, and, and basically make love to a great melody. Yes, I, I love the way you put it, um, of them uh, deeply listening to each other. And uh, when I hear those two duets, I, I get this incredible sense of, uh, love is the word that comes to mind. Uh, you know, not a romantic love, but just a, a a spiritual love, a friendship. This this incredible um, sensitivity and uh, an artistic affinity between the two of them. the The other thing I wanted to ask you is: this is something that I've, I've thought of. You know, I, I think a lot has been written about the choice of, of, uh, organ synthesizer. Um, uh, what does she use on trans translinear light? And, and do you think that there is a correlation between those choices and, uh, and the bagpipes? Um, I, because that's, that's what actually some of like, uh, on Leo and, um, uh, uh, impressions, it reminds me of, uh, of that sound. I, I know John Coltrane liked the sound of the bagpipes. Um, do you see any correlation in that? Well, um, your question is about bagpipes and whatnot. I mean, bagpipes are, are famous for having what's called a drone, where you have this uh, one note that just keeps repeating again and again, and it kind of defines a, uh, a, a tonal center, you know, for the performance. Um, you know, in, in uh, his approach to harmony and, and music theory in general, uh, John Coltrane was very focused on the idea of tonal centers and playing off of a tonal center, suggesting the center, etc., etc. So, you know, the idea of a drone is something that um, uh, is already there on a conceptual level, you know, deep in, in John Coltrane's approach to, to music. It's also there as far as its meditative effect. Um, you hear it a lot in, um, uh, uh, it's called a tambura uh, uh, in Indian music. And in fact, um, Alice Coltrane uses a tambura on her very first recordings for Impulse Records in the late 60s. The idea of setting up a drone that uh, a zitar usually would, would play against. And that that um, uh, uh, idea is something that, uh, you know, is shared by many different cultures, including Scottish, Irish, you know, hence the bagpipes. 
Um, so it, it, it all makes sense at a very elemental level. And the idea of getting into the kind of primal nature of music and trying to see how you, one can find a universal um, connection through music that anybody on at any corner of the planet can relate to was one of the driving forces behind this 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 music making this uh, you know creative expression that John Coltrane and Alice Coltrane and many others have have um, pursued the idea that music is an uh, a global connective that music is that way of conveying a universal message that anybody can feel, hear, be touched by, resonate to, you know. So it, it, it all is part of it, you know, in the mechanics of the music, in the instrumentation of the music, and in the message of the music, too. Oh, that's that's so beautifully said, Ashley, and, and I really appreciate your time and 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 your knowledge and and talking about Alice. So, you know, thank you so much for uh, for doing this interview, Michelle. It's my pleasure. Thank you for doing this. As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. Closeness is a new work by the Michelle Brangwen Dance Ensemble, and it's set to For Turia, which was written by Charlie Hayden for Alice Coltrane. Turia was the Sanskrit name that she took. Tim Higgins arranged the composition for our musicians, bass, trumpet, sax, and voice, and he included not only the head or the melody of For Turia, but also these beautiful melodies that Alice Coltrane played on the harp when she recorded it with Charlie Hayden in 1976 for his album Closeness, and thus the title of the work Closeness. It features Thomas Helton on bass. The dancers join the musicians for an exploration of closeness between people. The work premiered at The Match in Houston this past August. You can catch it at our upcoming performance at the Jazz Loft in Stony Brook, New York, on November 9th at 8 p.m. You can get more info at brangwindance.org or thejazzloft.org. This has been Fly Over the Groove, the Michelle Brangwin Dance Ensemble's podcast. Thank you for listening.